0: where misinformation starts, how it spreads, and what to do about it. In this enlightening conversation, we're joined by sociologist and author Matthew Fasciani. His academic journey from neuroscience to sociology has enabled him to unearth the profound influence of identities and networks on our belief systems. While we focus on him offering us valuable insights for anyone looking to enhance their communication skills, the pinnacle of our conversation is an exclusive preview of his upcoming book, Misguided, Where Misinformation Starts, How It Spreads, and What to Do About It. This much-anticipated read promises to illuminate the complex dynamics of misinformation marking a significant contribution to sociology. Take advantage of this time to learn from one of today's leading voices in sociology. Welcome to the Wellness Driven Life Show, where you're about to go on a wellness-driven ride. Let me tell you a little bit more about the guests we have today. Matthew Fasciani is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Notre Dame in the Computer Science and Engineering Department. Fasciano previously worked as a postdoctoral researcher and lecturer in the Medicine, Health and Society, de- Society Department at Vanderbilt University. He received a BA in psychology from Westminster College and an MA and PhD in sociology from the University of South Carolina. His research interests include media uh, literacy, identities, social networks, political polarization, and misinformation. His forthcoming book, Misguided, Where Misinformation Starts, How It Spreads, and What to Do About It, will be published by Columbia University Press. I am so pleased to help welcome Mr. Matthew Fasciani to the stage. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much, April. It's great to be here.
0: It's my pleasure, and that was a mouthful. Of course, I don't know if I had it all right, but yeah. you can certainly explain to us. So I'm excited to have you here to do so today. Now, Matthew, why don't you start by sharing with the audience a little bit more about you?
1: Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit of my academic journey. Uh, it's a little bit unusual in that I, I started uh, in neuroscience, and then I moved to sociology. So to give some context on that, I was a psychology major. And I really thought I wanted to do clinical psychology for a while and be a therapist. But I started doing more research in neuroscience. uh, Working at a hospital, I would give uh, neuropsych evaluations to brain injury patients. And then I worked in a brain imaging lab. And I got really excited about the brain and how that works. So I decided to apply to PhD programs in neuroscience. And I really enjoyed learning about the brain. But I realized I was mostly interested in bigger social issues and I really want to study people instead of neurons. So I was able to switch into sociology at the same university and finish my PhD in sociology. So I kind of have an interesting journey starting as a, a neuroscientist at the beginning of my grad school career, then ending up in sociology.
0: Well so much of that seems to go hand in hand too. You know all of it's connected, right? And so you really stemmed from this beautiful position of learning that that root, so to speak, Uh, some of the parts of us that really make us who we are and why we function the way that we do, the why we make decisions the way that we do. And I do think it's fascinating. What was something, Matthew, that really sparked your interest to make that shift?
1: Yeah, I've always been interested in science communication, science outreach, uh, social advocacy, So I've always been in different groups outside of academia. And for me, seeing uh, a lot of the political polarization um, really kind of sparked my interest in wanting to study it more directly. So I was interested in uh, political attitudes and just how beliefs are formed uh, really since I started studying psychology. And it would have been a lot easier for me to study this more directly in a sociology program. But you're right, all of it is connected. So I really try to take a holistic approach to studying people. And even though my degree ended up being in sociology, I really think of myself as a social scientist more broadly.
0: Yes, I love that. Social scientist, and we need more of those so we can have better insight because I love science, Matthew. The reason I love it is because it really gives us some solid uh, understanding of facts, right? Because they've been tested and they've been tried and they've been, you know, trued, so to speak. And so I'm curious, you have conducted so much research, you've got uh, all of that thing backing you. What was one of the greatest things that was an aha moment for you that you discovered during some of this research?
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the
0: podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby. We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be, but we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education.
1: That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children.
0: On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, The school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate for your child and yourself.
1: Whether you're a new parent or have been in the
0: game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together.
1: Yeah, so I've been studying misinformation and political polarization for about eight years now, uh, directly. Um, And I've always been really fascinated in how our identities and social relationships impact what we believe. So we like to think that we come to our beliefs through reasoning and just by reading the facts. And a lot of times we do but we're not always aware of how much our personal identities and social relationships can influence us. So that was something that really was fascinating to me, was trying to understand how these social forces can shape what we believe and how, even if someone is highly educated in one area, for example, they can still fall for misinformation in another area because it might be attached to a identity that's important to them. And when we think about identities, they can really be very powerful. They help us navigate our social worlds in a lot of times. So you can think about our identities in relation to being a friend or family member or our work identity. But we can also have identities that are more political that can motivate us to protect those identities. And because these identities give us self-esteem, we're motivated to uh, protect them, so they continue to make us feel good. And great for, like I said, connecting with other people or enacting a work identity. Maybe you wanna do a really good job because that's important to us. It makes us feel good about ourselves. But again, if we belong to a group that is intersecting with how we process facts, sometimes it can bias us us to process information in a way that's consistent with that identity uh, that may not be, most closely assisted with the best evidence we have.
0: So a lot of what I hear is that we make our decisions based on what we grew up with, based on the influences that we had. And also what I hear, which I think is really, really powerful to be said, is we make decisions based on what makes us feel comfortable, what makes us feel secure. And Mm -hmm. so there's so much of those, if we think about the... uh, what's it called? And you're going to know better, but that the, it's like a triangle of the human needs, the basic human needs, right? Maslow's hierarchy
1: of needs. Yeah.
0: Right. So in, and that, that safety, security, uh, all of those things are, are some of the, the basic needs. And I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so much of our decisions uh, are based off of that, of their these personal desires and wants and needs. And really, of course, our perception of that is all based on our experience throughout childhood.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, humans are very social creatures. And we've historically always worked together in groups to try to survive. And we really value that social connection. And there's tons of research just showing how important social connection is for overall health and wellness. It's just like, a super powerful factor for how healthy someone's going to be. So again, we're really motivated to maintain these social connections. So whenever you think, like, oh, how can someone believe something that's false, for example? Uh, for me, I, I try to think of it in, in terms of those social connections. So you can think about, okay, well, maybe I read something that makes my group look bad or uh silly online. And like maybe it's a factual thing, but By believing this factual thing, I might lose some of that group membership. I might lose personal friends that I have meaningful social connection with. So Mm -hmm. when you weigh the two things of, okay, I could update my beliefs to be more accurate, but really what does that gain me in in the immediate as far as how I interact with people? Like I might lose a friendship and that's much more powerful than be like, okay, I'm going to change my belief on this abstract thing that may not have an impact on your day-to-day life.
0: Oh, well, you could really go deep in this, right? If you consider, and I'm going to go dark here, but during the Holocaust, and there's so much conflict on and people saying, well, I would never, or would I respond that way? And what you're saying a lot is of uh, we make a lot of decisions, not just because we believe it to be true or the right thing to do, but because that is what is accepted by the majority.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of work uh you know stemming from World War II looking at conformity and obedience to authority figures. And that that is the another negative side of it is that we do have this tendency to defer to group settings. So mm-hmm. you you know it can be something um even as innocuous as just uh choosing the the wrong answer for a simple task. So there's this this great series uh the the Ash Conformity uh, experiments back in the 50s, where they just had people do this very simple task of identifying which line was longer out of like three or four of them. And most people get it right 100% of the time. It's really easy. But you're much more likely to get it wrong if five or six people in front of you in a group all give the wrong answer. And then when it's your turn, you're like, uh-oh, I must be missing something. Like all of these people right. are saying another they thing. They
0: something I don't.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's that is fascinating. And so what how does that work when we start talking? You've studied a lot about gamification. What is the play in that on on the studies with how we receive misinformation and then how that's in relation to this virtual world that we have created for ourselves?
1: yeah so it's such a huge issue and it's everywhere and what we try to do is find just tangible practical solutions that can be applied that are scalable so one way to do that is to make an online game so people are online like you said a lot of people are online on social media so how can we use that uh to our advantage if we want to share good information with them that could be helpful so we've been working on a media literacy game that teaches people skills on how to Uh, learn different uh, techniques that can protect themselves and their family against misinformation. And there's a lot of different games like this. Uh, Our games focuses on a uh, WhatsApp environment. So it's like a simulated WhatsApp game where your friends and family are messaging you on the app, and they're sharing misinformation with you. And you try to tell them why it's incorrect, and you get more points if you give the right answer. And at the end of it, you learn about things like filter bubbles and confirmation bias and how to verify a credible source so you can take those tangible skills with you after you play the game.
0: That That is so, so cool. You truly are giving people knowledge and teaching people how to think more constructively, how to really uh, research you know other things and not just go based off of what everybody else says. So mm-hmm. I think that that is really incredible that you offer that. And speaking of, you know, when we talk about having conversations with people that disagree, you have some tips and tricks on how to navigate that. But I want to go back a little further Matthew because you sure, you sure. noted that you the way that you address people or I shouldn't say address, but the, the way that you have really shifted gears on how you view people that have differing opinions and how you may lose a friend or what have you. But I'm mm-hmm. curious, when you come to that point where somebody else has a different idea than you, has it really brought you to a point of, Uh, more understanding, acceptance of thinking further of what are, you know, why they come to the conclusions that they do. So how has that shifted you as a person individually? And my mind also kind of goes to forgiveness and how that Mm -hmm. is one of the biggest things that everybody should do, right? And come to this forgiveness attitude and perception and belief where uh, we are with people that have either wronged us or we disagree with them. And that is one of the hardest things to do. So I'm just curious for you on a personal level, how has that shifted you?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So it definitely has impacted me. I think, you know, studying sociology if we study people I think it it has an impact on our own lives uh, at least I think it should I think we should be mindful of you know what we learn what we research um, a lot of times we study specific things because they've had an impact on our lives personally uh, For me I do think it is helped me uh, empathize with with people who think differently than me um, from studying this you know learning about all of the factors that go into why someone holds a specific belief really makes it a lot easier for me to understand that it doesn't necessarily mean they're they're a bad person or to put them in a, in a specific group that presents so much uh, choice on how they got down to that, that specific road. Um, I really try to see about all the factors that go into why someone might think differently than me. And then reflect on my own beliefs too, on how you know, I could be uh, led astray from my own biases. So I do think it helps me think about my own beliefs more and try to be really thoughtful on where I might be incorrect on something and just more open to listening to different perspectives. So it's something I really try to do. Um, But it it is hard. So, you know, when we talk about politics, it can be really personal for a lot of people. And if someone thinks that another person is advocating for a policy that directly conflicts with their human rights for example then it's really challenging and it goes beyond just a difference of opinion it can really be really serious and uh discussions and through some of my work i have found that uh, more marginalized groups are more likely to cut ties sometimes due to political disagreements because yeah. It's, it's much more of a serious uh, topic than something more abstract and removed. So it's, it's a difficult balance where you want to try to connect with people and you want to try to uh, not shut people out for having different beliefs. But at the same time, you have to consider, okay, is this person going to be safe for me to be around? And mm. you have to decide on your own boundaries too. So yeah. it, it gets really complicated for sure
0: yeah, absolutely. And I would think, you know, and I'm curious, Matthew, did you go in into the depth research of the political arena because it is such a a hot topic and it brings so much heated emotion to it. I mean, there are, There are topics that bring that, right? It's religion Mm -hmm. and politics. And I Mm -hmm. oftentimes still steer very, very clear away from both, unless it has Mm -hmm. something to do with the the topic of conversation or somebody's story and journey. And it's because of that, right? It brings so much emotion, passion, drive, uh, you know, where people feel so innately that their thoughts and perceptions are correct. and whether they are or they're not, it just is. And that's how people respond to it. And it makes me think that there's been probably likely many studies done on this through the course of history. And I'm curious, Matthew, who have been the people who have really influenced you on this journey of researching this political arena?
1: Yeah, there's there's a whole bunch. I mean, I I feel like for me, My experience as an undergraduate, my teachers I had as a psychology major really shaped me. So I went to a small liberal arts college in the middle of rural Pennsylvania, and I was very thankful to have such positive interactions with my professors. Because it was so small, I could talk to them individually and and gain a lot of uh, insights from them. So for me personally, I always go back to my uh, education um, as an undergraduate. I think it was really helpful for me. Um, I mean, there's a lot of big names in, in psychology and sociology. Um, but for me, the, the teachers I had were definitely most impactful because I never thought I would go to grad school. Like I'm the first person in my family to get an advanced degree like that. So um, I. I'm very thankful for where I am today and very grateful I was able to get here because uh, I never really thought I would.
0: <laughs> well, I am very, very curious about this book that you have coming out and uh, I'll, I'll read it again because it's it's got an awesome title too. It is Thanks. something that I would pick up 100% <laughs> Misguided, Where Misinformation Starts how it spreads and what to do about it. And it's going to be published by Columbia University Press. That's a big deal. So tell me, Matthew, a little bit about this book, how it stemmed and a little, yeah, in depth insight on it.
1: Yeah. So I decided to write this book um, because of COVID-19, essentially. I, I graduated at the beginning of the pandemic and I saw just all the polarization around COVID 19 and vaccines, and just how heated people were getting. And it was so related to what I studied during my PhD. And, you know, people kept telling me, oh, this is so relevant. Like, you know, there's so timely what you're studying. And I never thought I'd write a book. Uh, You know, it's always been a goal of mine uh, since I started grad school, but I didn't think I'd be able to do it this early. but I just sent cold emails to publishers with a proposal attached, and a few of them were interested. And then finally, Columbia got back to me and and gave me the contract. So uh, it was very fortuitous in a lot of ways um, as someone just coming out of grad school to be able to to get that contract. And I think it was because what I was studying was just so timely, and so many people are interested mm-hmm. in trying to find just evidence based solutions to what we can do about this situation. So so yeah for sure my book covers how our identities and personal networks impact our beliefs so that's kind of like what we've been talking about this whole time and i tried to uh tailor that on uh misinformation so things that uh we know are are false or against the scientific consensus and why people still hold beliefs that conflict with with the best knowledge we have available and I talk about our identities, this this motivation to protect our self-esteem that we have through these identities, and that's a big part of why we believe what we believe. So again, this is that, that feedback loop of wanting to interpret information in a way that's consistent with these identities that make us feel good and avoiding information that might make us feel poorly. And once we understand that feedback loop, then we also have to consider how that intersects with other people. So everyone else has their own identity feedback loops and those intersect with ours. So you can think of this as in terms of, uh, this, this mutual verification process where we're each wanting to verify and support our identities. So when you think about just being on social media, you might post something to support your own identity and other people who agree with you, are going to see it and share it and like it to support their identities and it really mm-hmm. just uh accelerates and and sometimes exa- exacerbates uh some of the negative elements of of biases that come from identities so i talk about personal networks but also social media connections since i think both those are really important both our online and offline connections can really shape what we believe
0: you know it's it's great that you bring in identity to this. And how can you not? Because our beliefs shape our identities and they are so tied together. It's this, is this very, uh, tight knot that just maybe cannot be undone in many cases for a mm-hmm. lot of people. And so Let's talk a little bit more about that. I would love to know your ideas, your take specifically on identity.
1: Yeah. So because it's so powerful, uh, it's really important to consider also how we can use it to reduce polarization too. So I talk about in terms of how identities can cause polarization and contribute to misinformation. But I also talk about how to effectively communicate with that knowledge in mind. So I give these these five steps of how to have productive dialogue uh, in the book, and I think they're they're helpful for for really any sort of contentious topic. Uh, I talk about politics a lot, uh, again because you know politics and religion are so emotional and so like powerful examples of identity bias and beliefs. Mm. So that's why I focus on them a lot. Um, as a social scientist, they're just kind of easy to study because they're so big and powerful. Um, but yeah I, I can go into those five steps uh i think the, the, they're useful uh strategies so the first one is just to establish mutual respect with the person that you're speaking with and this one you know makes sense it seems very straightforward but it's so important because if you don't have that bedrock of trust and respect you really can't go very far and this is why a lot of online conversations are just pointless because you don't have that mutual respect with a stranger on the internet. It's anonymous a lot of times, and it's really hard to have any sort of uh, constructive feedback or meaningful dialogue. So this is why it's really important to have uh, in-person conversations, or at least over Zoom or on the phone, some sort of human element before you even start. So that's, that's the first one is just mutual respect. And then we can start thinking about how our identities play a role. So we know that identities can impact our beliefs, but we also know that we're more likely to trust someone if they share identities with us. So we can try to establish a common identity that we share first. So maybe we don't have uh, religion or politics in common with the person we're talking with, but maybe we're both parents. We both have kids and we can focus just on the common experience of being a parent and having kids and and talk about how we both want what is best for our children and have that shared goal lead another part of the conversation. So you're establishing trust, you're having mutual respect. We're also using uh, identities that you both share before you get into the more contentious stuff. So Yeah. So this is the first two. to keep, keep going. <laughs> yeah.
0: But it sounds a lot to me like mirroring and mm-hmm. in, in, in a lot of different ways. And I agree with you. You always want to find something that you can have some sort of relation with to really establish a, a connection with somebody. So I love where you're going already. And I think it's very, very powerful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, so once you are talking with someone and establishing this uh, shared identity, you can then start thinking about the language you're using as far as trying to get your point across. And again, I should mention that when I talk about this, these five steps, it's how to have productive dialogue. It's not necessarily to change someone's mind. Uh, the only person that can change their mind is the person themselves. So this really isn't necessarily about persuasion. It's how do you even get someone to hear what you're saying? Because so often we don't even, we it, it can bounce off the walls of someone so so quickly. So at least have them reflect on what we said, and we can reflect on what they say. So that's, that's kind of the goals of these five steps. Um, so once you're using um, these steps, another another one is to reframe uh, the conversation and address their concerns. So a lot of times when we care about something, we think about why we care about it, but the other person may not care about it for those reasons, but maybe there's other reasons that they would care about it. So uh, if someone really cares about the economy, for example, and you really care about uh, solar energy for protecting the earth, you might say, well, look at all these jobs that are uh, being created by solar energy. So that's a way that that they can, th- you can intersect with a concern yeah. they have about uh, more economic concern but yeah. if you're, they feel
0: listened yeah, to yeah. and they feel heard, right. acknowledged. Exactly. That's,
1: yeah, yeah, you're right. So that's a, another big thing of uh, these productive conversations is if the other person feels heard. So that kind of goes into the, the mutual respect and relating to them, because yeah, studies have shown that when people feel heard, uh, they have much more positive. Uh, they they rate the conversation much more positively and they're much more open-minded whenever they're feeling heard and their feelings are validated. Mm. So again, this is like a lot of communication stuff that applies to lots of different things. Just like how do you have productive dialogue in general? Uh, I talk about it in terms of misinformation, polarization, but really it's just like communication styles that can improve uh, communication with anyone.
0: Yeah. Matthew, um, if I could just switch the conversation just for a moment sure, and then we'll come back to the to the next steps. But I'm curious because I've heard a, a few times that uh, people make decisions first on an emotional response and then the logical response. Is that true to you? Uh,
1: so... There's a couple of ways to to think about it. There is a lot of literature on different styles of thinking. So this, this idea that uh, we have this type one thinking, it's called. is like this fast, intuitive, more emotional type of thinking. And then a type two, which is more reflective, analytic type thinking. Uh, I think they're both constantly in play. Um, yeah. I'm not sure I would even say one is always first. But it's a lot easier to do the type one thinking. Uh, before we dive into the more analytical thinking. So um, I think that, yeah, we do default on heuristics or mental shortcuts a lot. Um, So that's kind of part of that emotional type one type of thinking where what's, what are we most familiar with? Like we do a lot of pattern recognition and if something connects with us in a way that's uh, connected to something previously held in our mind, we might immediately go to that. And and relates to misinformation. If it's a false thing, then that can be a problem. So yeah, yeah.
0: well, I I love I th- thank you for answering that, and I appreciate your response very much because you know maybe that's a misinformation, right? And it is it's probably very difficult to come to an understanding of really uh, where we stem our initial response from, whether it is mm-hmm. emotional or logical, because our brains happen so. F- quickly right our thoughts and our decisions happen so fast and when we have both the unconscious mind and the conscious mind at play communicating with one another it's like okay the so the information is coming from the unconscious mind based on the experiences that the conscious mind is taking in and you know I don't know. I'm not a scientist, so I wouldn't know all of that. But I really appreciate your response because you, you're like, well, I don't think that it's it's either or. I think it could mm-hmm. be both and they interplay together.
1: Yeah. So from studying psychology, I, I've read a lot of other psychologists who think of emotion and reason as two sides of the same coin. Uh, they're always interacting with each other so it's yeah. really hard to say like one is really distinct from the other since just the brain is always like you said like connected with all these different types of, of memories and associations and emotions and feelings so yeah. it gets really tricky uh to to focus on one specific factor uh and just isolate like one variable and that's what makes social science so hard is we have all these factors uh, swirling yeah. around all the time so yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great question. So everybody should that, yeah.
0: truly appreciate Matthew's work here just because <laughs> I, I don't think you have any idea how in, in, in ah, I, there's so much. It's just fascinating to me. Yeah. You could just continue the research and, 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 as we all are, and what's beautiful about it is we, we, there is so much more science that continues to back all of these thoughts and ideas, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful thing. And so I would I would love for you to to finish off with these other tips and tricks because they're really great.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, so we talked about reframing uh, yep. the conversation to address the other person's concerns.
0: Feeling and heard. Then,
1: yeah, yeah, feel heard um, as well. And um, the next one we can think about revising our questions themselves. So this is really revising our language and thinking about what words we use when we ask certain questions. Mm. And this also connects to what we're talking about with those type one and type two thinking. We really wanna cultivate an environment where we encourage reflection. So we don't wanna have like a a black and white type of thinking of who's right and who's wrong, but really ask people questions like, how do they know what they know? Uh, How confident are they? Um, What mechanism? led them to their beliefs like like explain the step-by-step mechanism and this really forces people to be a lot more thoughtful and a less uh, knee-jerk reaction and how they talk about their beliefs and even just the word how versus why can be really powerful so if we ask someone how they know something versus why they know something the how makes them think about that mechanism a little bit more of of what components led to this as opposed to just why you could be like, oh, well, uh, my favorite politician thinks this and I want to support them. So it's like you can give like a really good or strong answer, uh, good in your mind that makes sense, but it's a lot harder to do that with the how versus why. So I really like that those kinds of, of, of prompts to think about our conversation is like, okay, once we've established these other social factors as far as like relating and reframing and respecting Then we finally get to the actual language that we use, and we should use language that encourages a more reflective, thoughtful conversation.
0: Mm, yeah, knowing your audience is is pretty powerful, pretty key. Mm-hmm. Matthew, I can definitely tell you are a scientific mind, and I appreciate <laughs> that and love that so much. And you know, I'm curious too. You know, you have all of these wonderful insights and ideas of really understanding your audience, really paying attention, being more uh, intentional with how you're responding with others. And I'm curious how much of your research has included body language, facial features. And the reason that that comes to my mind is because we've had a couple of guests on the show where this is coming to the head and we, we discuss things like that and how you can really gain so much information of how a person is responding based on that, based on facial features and how they're, you know, sitting and how they're responding to you, the body language of all of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's huge. Um, so a lot of my research is is text based, uh, simply because it's it's easier. So a lot of research is text based because it's just easier to write a survey, or, or uh, it's it's less expensive to to study mm. it that way. Um, but you know, visual yeah. and audio is huge too, and I think a lot of researchers would like to spend more time doing it if, if we could. Um, and there is more of a push to study visual communication with with social media, for example, and TikTok being so huge, like it is now. But you're right, they're absolutely massive components. Uh, one study that I, I looked at, that's a little bit more niche, but kind of related. Uh, we looked at um, how different cultures can interpret these these cartoons we made. So we just asked people to watch this, this scenario of basically this cartoon character is just like a, a circle with eyes and a mouth. So it's not even like a human, it's more of like a cartoon, but you can see the facial expressions. And we found that people across different cultures can still interpret what's going on in this is cartoon story uh the same because there's still this common idea of of what's going on even though there's there was no language used in the story they were just kind of like mouthing sounds uh kind of like the the charlie brown teacher Mm -hmm. um and we were able to find that that people can interpret this across different different groups so that kind of gets to your question uh but i i haven't really directly studied uh nonverbal uh, cues as much.
0: Yeah, I you know that that too is fascinating to me. Again, just saying how in depth all of this can go, but I think that what you really bring to light, Matthew, is some really great basics where people can start. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is is so powerful, that general knowledge that everybody should know. And that's why your book is going to be so powerful in the the field of sociology. And so I I think that's great. I want to go back a little bit because I've had this, this thought in my mind. I'm curious your opinion on it. And when we talk about identity shifts, et cetera, and we talk about some sort of global impact like we experienced during the the pandemic, the global pandemic. And when we talk about identity, when things that are drastic or traumatic happen, our identities shift. They, Mm -hmm. They have to. We go into this identity crisis because things aren't the way they normally are. And we are, we are human beings where we like this consistency, right? We like the patterns, we like the norm. We, you know, we, we like knowing where things are and what we're going to do. And when that is, is changed and we have an identity crisis and we start asking ourselves, well, who are we? What are we? Now, my question is when people go through an experience like that and have this shift in identity, their response to things might not be as uh, accurate or logical because emotions are involved. So what are the dangers, if any, when things like this happen to create possible misconception?
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. The identities and how they shift are are huge for how we navigate our worlds and interpret information. So, when I think about in terms of misinformation and polarization, we know that people are more vulnerable to those when they feel disconnected or unhappy or anxious. So, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of research showing this link of people falling for misinformation when they feel uncertain about themselves, or anxious, or isolated. And that's what makes this problem so tricky is ultimately, we need to shape society to avoid isolation and inequality and people feeling disenfranchised, which is our huge problems, right? So as long as we have these huge issues in our society, we're always going to have people who are looking for some sort of support, and they might need to go to a more fringe group to get that sort of social support. And during the pandemic, yeah, there was a lot of isolation that, that drove driven a lot of people to more fringe groups as well. So it's it's such a big issue. Again, it's like you can study the the psychological mechanism of like how people process information, but then you also have to consider these broad sociological factors of how society is structured and how growing isolation, for example, plays a huge role in why people are vulnerable to... Uh, falling for things that are not true.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, Matthew, you have created, written this beautiful work that you're putting out into the world, and I can see that you're a very passionate person of giving people something that they can utilize to improve themselves. Now, if we look back at historical aspects when it comes to sociology and the decisions that we make and the the polarization of things, where do you feel uh, where we've been, and where do you feel we're going?
1: Yeah. So as far as polarization, we do see evidence that's been growing the last 10, 12, 15 years, unfortunately. Um, and it is really concerning to see where we're going to be in the future because it's it's unsustainable for a functioning democracy to have so much strife among the two major political parties. And if we constantly view things from our own isolated information echo chambers. We're only gonna be more disconnected from each other disconnected from people who think like us. And what I worry about is just how this is spreading across multiple levels. So it's not just social media, but even just geologically more and more people who vote similarly are moving to be with people who vote like they do. And we see this this geographic polarization as well. Um, So, I I really would like to see. I mean, again, there's so many like ways to dive into this. There, it's such a huge issue as far as media is constructed and political incentives and how the political system is incentivizing certain behaviors. Um, all of those things are just such huge issues. It's like, what what can we do individually um to make a difference? Because you know, we can just try to elect slightly less corrupt politicians. <laughs> and that's, you know, that, that's, that's really hard, as far as our individual impact of of having one vote. But as far as uh, trying to connect with other people, I really like the idea of of trying to join groups that we may not think to join, or joining a group that has a more diverse group of people. So
0: Hmm.
1: joining like a recreational sports league, you might get Democrats, Republicans, independents, but you're all playing the same game. And I know for me, like when I've played softball, like I've played with people of very different political perspectives than I do. And I didn't know that until like at the very end, when we were just, you know, drinking a beer, hanging out. And I think those types of Connections and experiences are really powerful because when you realize like, Hey, like I just played softball with this person for a few months and, you know, I had a great time playing with them. And oh, you like mean they we're,
0: was, we're you know, all, yeah. we're all human on the same team.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So we're all human on the same team. Yeah. And this group that I, you know, on my online group might demonize people that, uh, belong to this certain group. But then in real life, I'm like, oh, this person is just a human, just like me. They're not evil. They're just a human. And, and maybe there are some misperceptions I learned from uh, you know, social media.
0: I think this is brilliant. And I think that you're 100% correct. I love that you are offering this as a, a thought and an option for people to to play on, really broadening your mind, your perspective, mm-hmm. and being with other people in order to do so. You have to think right. outside the box, right? And have this, this like larger mind, so to speak, on, on being open to other people's thoughts and opinions and being curious. I think curiosity is, is a big, big deal too, because if we're not curious to learn about other people's thoughts and opinions and ideas to question why they might feel that way, then it's a lot harder to get there, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've heard the curiosity be referred to as a superpower and I would agree with that. I think it's, it's, it's super powerful and it, it helps our own mindset. It helps us be more empathetic and compassionate because again, we're instantly in a space of trying to understand why that person thinks that way Instead of immediately putting them into a box. And we also can reflect on our own beliefs and how we might have, uh, you know, come to decisions that are based on different factors beyond our control. So, yeah, I think that would be another step uh, or part of some of the steps that I use is like whenever you're trying to cultivate uh, reflection, uh, curiosity is, is huge. And uh, if we could all, try to be more mindful of that and try to mm. reward that more, uh, I think we'd all be better off.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And again, I love what you're creating with the the, the virtual world or the, the games, the literacy games. And so Matthew, you have this book coming out. I'm curious, what is the next big passion project for you?
1: Yeah, so... I think I'd really like to dive more into technology and society, artificial intelligence. So yeah, I work in a computer science department as a sociologist, which is interesting and really cool. And I'm always interested in technology and society. I've always have been. So in the future, as we see the rise of AI and technology, I'd really like to consider that angle. I talk about that a little bit in my book at the end, um, but I'd like to focus on that more directly. Um, and continue to try to keep up with how the information landscape is is changing how artificial intelligence is going to play a role. Um, and also broadly consider how this relates to how we communicate with politics and with health and and how and how we communicate with each other.
0: Yeah well thank you so much for sharing all of that. Matthew, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Wellness Driven Life Show. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience today?
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, if someone is interested in following my work, uh, they can go on my website, matthewfasciani.com. Uh, they can also follow me on uh, threads. I've been active on there. And yeah. then finally, my book, I don't have a, a pre-order link yet, but I will. So if you follow me on my newsletter, on my sub stack, then you'll get emailed immediately whenever it's available. And if there's any sort of pre-order deals or anything like that, you'll be the first to know.
0: That's awesome. I'm very excited to see your book come out, the release of it, and to you know, see what people have to say about it when they read this incredible information. I really appreciate you being a light on the show today. Thank you so much for sharing your insight, your wisdom. Thank you for all of the research that you're doing that not all of us are doing and have access to. You're really bringing that to us. And so I always appreciate that. So I want to, again, make sure everybody knows where to find you and also that that link is in the description below. So for those of you who are listening in on a podcast, it is always there. So thank you again, Matthew, for being on the Wellness Driven Life Show. And I want to thank our audience. Without you, we would not be possible. So thank you so much. Goodbye for now. And we will see you later.